0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. We will pick back up in our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian at page 101. And we've been talking about good works or new obedience. We'll continue to do so today. With apologies, I will have to end this class a bit earlier than usual. Hopefully, it won't break your heart too bad since you get breakfast that much sooner. But that will uh, lead us to an abrupt ending. So let's begin with invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Question 199. But how can good works be done by us when the devil stalks us with his snares, the world is full of offenses, And sin itself dwells in our flesh. This kind of question is alive today as well. And often it's asserted that because we have the sinful flesh, we can do no good works. That, whatever truth might lie therein, that is a deceptive statement and is a statement that mitigates against countless New Testament scriptures. Let's get into Chemnitz's answer. First of all, it is necessary that the person be reconciled to God through faith for the sake of Christ. For thus, the Holy Spirit is given in reconciliation itself. He purifies and renews hearts. And now I'll point out to you by way of passing. Look at the text cited. He will kindle new affections in your heart. That it submit itself to the law and divine obedience. For a tree must first be good before good fruits come forth from it. But after the Holy Spirit has already begun in us that work of renewal, we also can and should add our effort by following the leadership of the Holy Spirit and mortifying the works of the flesh through the Spirit. And again, look at the references. So I think I've read from you a section in the Book of Concord the document called the Formula of Concord, the Solid Declaration, and the article on free will, which is the second article where the Book of Concord openly says we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. And here you see Chemnitz likewise saying that we we also can and should add our effort by following the leadership of the Holy Spirit and mortifying the works of the flesh through the Spirit. Okay, continuing on. For through these exercises, God wants to preserve and increase in us his gifts by the grace, power, and help of the Holy Spirit. So not only preserve, but also increase in us. Chemnitz continues, And what is more, for this the Holy Spirit uses as ordinary means the preaching, hearing, and meditation of the divine word. So through the word, God desires to preserve in us, of course, true faith in all of these things. These are good works, too. I mean, what, when you believe rightly, that's a good work. In fact, it's a good work of the highest order to believe rightly. Pagans can't believe rightly in any sense. They refuse to. And then likewise to do or act Rightly. These things are good works, worked in us and through us by the Holy Spirit, but not in such a way that we're entirely passive. We also cooperate and, as Chemnitz puts it, follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. All of this given through the Word. So when you go to church, you're getting your faith and your sanctification, and you're getting these through the Word, and you're having them sustained and strengthened within you. Spiritual growth. All right, question 200. Are the good works of believers welcome, acceptable, and pleasing to God? Answer, of the works of the unregenerate, unbelievers, and hypocrites, no matter how good they seem, Scripture says, Hebrews eleven six: without faith it is impossible for anything to please God. And then you have references here. Also to Romans 14, Isaiah 1, and 66, and Psalm 109. So a thoroughgoing teaching in the scriptures. This is when you take the philanthropy of any unbeliever, and the whole world, of course, praises and worships and honors this, but to God it's nothing. To God, a, the, the lowliest Christian doing the least of all good works is infinitely more impressive than the greatest of all pagans doing the greatest of all, quote-unquote, pagan good works. And that has to do with relationship to God. It has to do with who God is. It also has to do definitionally with what a good work is. And if you want to follow Christ's teaching on this, what a good tree is. Because in order to produce good fruit, you have to first be a good tree. Is it within our power to make ourselves good trees? No. That's the work of Christ and his Holy Spirit. And as we are good trees, we bear good fruit. All right, let's get the second paragraph, the second part of Chemnitz 's answer to the question, are the good works of believers welcome acceptable and pleasing to God? But of the works of the reborn and believers, Scripture says, Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. And I won't read them out all here, but look at all the different citations. There are... I mean, I would hate to count how many places in the New Testament it talks about your good works, some act of obedience or fealty, being pleasing to the Lord. It can be really helpful if you're if you're new to this idea because you've just sort of been taught that the only way we're pleasing, we're not pleasing at all, except in Christ, then we're pleasing. And so all pleasing of God is firmly within the category of justification. If that's the way you've been thinking, then a then a good way to break out of that and break into a more biblical way of thinking is to look at the two different kinds in, of ways in which you can please the Father. In the category of justification, can you please the Father by your works? No, we are pleasing to him solely for the sake of Christ. In the category of sanctification, do your good works please him? Yes, absolutely. There are countless scriptures that say so. To give you a, a familial analogy uh, I'm a father, my son, let's say, um, I'm pleased to have my son, whether he's as my son, simply because he's born unto me. In the same way, God is pleased to have you as his son because you have been born unto him through Christ in the waters of holy baptism. Even when the son, or I should say, even if the son were to become prodigal, so to speak, and wander away, And denounce his sonship the father's heart is still turned toward his son and so God is still his heart is still turned toward us even if we wander away and he will receive us if we come to our senses and return to him. That's the first kind of pleasing the father. He's pleased to have us as his son even if we fall into great sin or error. A father doesn't just abandon his child because his child falls into great error, But the second way, again, just using the analogy of my son, I'm pleased to have him whether he's good or bad because he's my son, and I love him no matter what. But then there's this second category that when he does displeasing things, I don't go, oh, well. Or when he does pleasing things, I don't go, "Uh, mm, oh, well, that doesn't matter either. no. The things he does that are pleasing are good, and I want him to do those things. I want to direct him into those things. As he does them, I want to reward him and commend him so that he does them all the more. And that's the way in which our Father is pleased with us. He's pleased in the first place to have us with children. That's analogous to justification. He's pleased in the second place with our obedience, because that's, and that's sanctification. And he wants to increase that within us so that we are more and more capable of being like him. Okay, so then, yeah, Chemnitz very clear here. And again, if you have any doubts, look at all these scriptures, because you will find countless scriptures that talk about pleasing God with what we as Christians do. Any questions on what we've covered heretofore? Any thoughts? Anything unclear?
1: Uh, there, there's a verse in uh, Romans 14 that talks uh, about uh, anything done outside of faith is sin. Mm-hmm. Does that uh, resonate with this? Or that's mm-hmm. in the context of eating foods and so forth that Paul's instructing.
0: Uh, yeah, I'd have to go look at that specific verse. Do we want to take the time and do that? Um, I, oh, we certainly can. But Uh
1: is it, it, uh I, I just was wondering, because that, standing alone, it just seems that that's a, uh, a very, you know, strong statement. Uh, we can do nothing. Uh, mm-hmm. We can only sin outside of faith. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean this, it may have some application But it's not immediately what I would go to So 23, this is in the context of, let's see Not causing others to stumble if they think something is unclean That in fact is clean The kingdom of God isn't a matter of eating and drinking Don't, uh For the sake of food, destroy the work of God and your brother. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's a subset of this topic, but I don't think it's... It doesn't seem to me to be directly applicable If we, I, I think, I think more to the point would be Hebrews eleven six that Chemnitz quotes. Without faith, it is impossible for anything to please God. I think if you're looking for a say days or seat for this doctrine, we'd do better to go there. Romans fourteen twenty three. You'll see the cf, which I forget what that means exactly in Latin. Effectively confer or see also sometimes for a con- contrasting point. Uh, that's. I think I think that that's and that may even be that may even be an editor putting that in I don't know your mileage may vary maybe I'm just missing it So like Paul's points a little bit I think in Romans 14:23 is a little more existential and a less less objective it's more subjective and existential That's like if you believe something is a sin, even if it's not, and you do it, the effect on your conscience and the effect on your soul is the same. So it's kind of a distant subset, I would think, of this point made very clearly in Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible for anything to please God. Without faith, you're a bad tree. You're a bad root. Can you gather grapes from thistles? You can't. So you can't get good works from someone who hates God. Whatever they do is ultimately in service of Satan, themselves. At this level, there's no, it's kind of a distinction without a difference. Because the flesh and Satan are in agreement. Okay, great. Anything else we want to touch on? One up front here.
1: I hesitate to bring this up, but in our culture today, there are so many, what we would say, bad fathers. Right. So how does a Christian deal with that if he or she has a bad father?
0: Well, uh, two ways. The first is that even if we have bad parents, we're still called by God to honor them and to... uh, To forgive and overlook where necessary to bring uh, justice or an end, you know, if behaviors are particularly egregious, sinful, illegal, etc. But to honor that person even still is the call of the fourth commandment. Then, secondarily, in terms of like the type, we learn from our parents, no matter how good they are, both how God is and how God isn't. Yeah. Yeah. And so, that may be skewed one side or the other for any person, but you still can learn and you still have that as either a, I mean, Absalom is a villain in scripture, but he is also a type of Christ. He's the son of David who hangs from a tree and has his side pierced through. There are other such examples of villains in scripture who nonetheless are types or show forth who God is. And so I think that that's the same way you might look at your parents and say, well, they failed in this, that, and the other way. I know that God won't fail me in those ways. I know that that's not how God is. Yeah, please.
1: Uh, just what you're talking about right now, too. I have only recently kind of figured out as I've gotten older and older and had lots of experiences to ponder um, that when you leave the vengeance or whatever to God and you become neutral, and <laughs> even when someone really does you wrong.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It just is stress relieving and you take it out of yourself and you throw it at God and you just say, I don't know about this, but you figure it out, you Mm -hmm, know? mm -hmm. Um, Because sometimes, yeah, bad things happen and you just can't, you know, there's no rhyme or reason to it. The devil, we can always say that. Sure. But for, to even be bothered with, Trying to figure out, well, you figure out, you try to figure out a little bit where your part is in it. You know, where did it go wrong? Mm -hmm. You can't stop doing that. But to, even if if it all adds up to, they just blew it here. They Mm -hmm. just blew it, and they shouldn't have been this way. To waste any time in thinking about what you would rather do to them, or Mm -hmm. retribution, or Mm -hmm. any of those things. It's such a waste of time, because God's your champion.
0: Yeah, exactly. You'll
1: figure it out and that's the only piece that passes all understanding.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. And and also too, if your if your parents are um, Christian and they're pious and they're wise even when you think that it's a clear case of their failure, you should probably reserve judgment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Because another another 5 years, 10 years or the judgment itself might reveal something
1: different no, to you. No. at this point is one day they'll be my age and mm-hmm. this would not have occurred to me when I was 40 years exactly. old
0: exactly
1: so I have to let it go mm-hmm. reg- irregardless of what the circumstances are that I just now letting it go is a difficult task mm-hmm. yeah. um, but you have to let it go yeah you
2: absolutely
0: know? absolutely thank you Okay, anything else? All right, let's, uh, let's jump forward then to question 201. Are the good works of... You know, for the sake of it, let's just give a simple answer to question 200 because it is a, it is a little bit of a scandal today and an issue today. Are the good works of believers welcome, acceptable, and pleasing to God? Answer... Okay, good. 201. Are the good works of believers in this life so clean and perfect that they please God for this reason? No. Chemnitz' answer is as follows. With the help and operation of the Holy Spirit, the reborn indeed render some inward and outward obedience. But since the law requires complete and altogether absolute perfection from the whole heart without any evil desire, Deuteronomy five twenty one and six five, therefore all the saints complain that because of sin clinging to the flesh, they can by no means attain that perfection in this life. Romans seven eighteen and Galatians five seventeen. For though by God's favor they have the will and pious intent to do good things, yet because of sin dwelling in the flesh, evil lies near them and is fastened on them. 202. Since the good works of the reborn are neither pure nor perfect, how can they please God? They do not please God by reason of worthiness or perfection. But because the person has already been reconciled with God through faith for Christ's sake, therefore to him as to a father, the inchoate obedience of his children, such as as it is, is acceptable for the sake of that same Christ, no matter how weak and perfect and soiled by the filth of sin still clinging to the flesh." For that which our obedience lacks in that respect is supplied and covered by the completely perfect obedience of Christ, namely in those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit and acknowledge their imperfections. By faith all the saints obtained a testimony, namely regarding their deeds or works and sufferings, etc. Okay, so again, I hope it's clear enough, but in case it's not, since the good works of the reborn are neither pure nor perfect, how can they please God? They please God because whatever is lacking is covered in Christ. And God looks at it the way a loving father looks at the works of his children. We are, um, are trying to get our kids to help with uh, unloading the dishwasher and this kind of thing. So, you get, you get the dishwasher unloaded. Now, the question is, are you going to be able to find anything? And you open the silverware drawer, and you know, kind of like forks and everything knives, spoons are all combined. Okay, there's not really a maliciousness there, there's just not the know how or ability or maybe discipline to do it the right way. Okay, so, there's a correction that takes place. <laughs> but there 's still a kind of joy and a kind of being pleased on the part of the parents that the kiddos, no matter how little, are able to participate and contribute again. This strikes at the heart of our pragmatism and our overly pragmatic view as Americans, where unless it has this perfect pure result, it like isn 't worth it or something. You know I use the analogy of mowing the lawn with my son when he's three mowing you know near me with the bubble lawn mower. he's not actually cutting a single blade of grass but is that a good work or not yes there's no pragmatic value but in in a father's heart in a father's eyes that emulation that imitation that will one day blossom into real and good work is precious is wonderful is pleasing And so that that I think analogy is helpful because it takes away the pragmatism. We say well that didn't work God doesn't care so much if it works He sees the heart of a son of a daughter of his and he loves it and cherishes it and he knows he can nurture that into Great and wonderful deeds at some point down the road So these things are pleasing to God for the sake of Christ Um, And then that's this idea though too that he is our father and he delights Um, to be our Father, and he invites us to believe that he is our Father, and to see him as warm and tender toward us. You know, I think that that's kind of the beauty of the formulation, when, at least in this setting, we confess our sins, um, we confess our sins to our God and Father, not to a strict and just judge, even though God certainly is that, but to our merciful Father. It flavors the confession differently. We're coming to someone who understands, who knows us, who loves us, who loves us and likes us, who can see things in us that we can't see in ourselves, who can look past uh, whatever forks are put in the knife slot in our lives. He nonetheless, I love this line, first came across it in Chrysostom, he honors the intention. So I think beautifully expressed here by Chemnitz that of course then God does... uh, yeah, therefore to him, as to a father, the inchoate obedience of his children. I take that to mean like the newborn or just begun obedience of his children. I mean, even if you want to take that maybe in an overly literalistic, in the womb, obedience of his children, such as it is, is acceptable for the sake of that same Christ. Yeah. Okay, well, more could be said on that point, but let's not, unless you want to. (laughs) Anything else? All right.
1: I just want to say, to me, when your child brings home a drawing like first grade or kindergarten, Mm, mm. and objectively to our eyes, it's not that great, but we put it on the refrigerator or save them in a drawer because they're so precious to us, they're wonderful. Absolutely,
0: yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's the same way God looks at our our works, and yeah, it's delightful and it's wonderful. And I think, yeah, I mean, this this is kind of a it's worth thinking about. It's worth meditating on. There's a way in which we can look forward to the judgment, uh, not only because we'll hear the absolute and final absolution of God over all our sins. But because we know his fatherly heart toward us and we know he's pleased with us for the sake of Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit, we, I don't think we have to look forward to the judgment like it's going to be some sort of draconian, disastrous, terrible experience. There's going to be vindication involved. There's going to be commendation involved. That's what Paul flat out says in 1 Corinthians then their condemnation, or yeah, did I say that right? No, commendation. <laughs> Careful there. Commendation or praise will be from God. And so there, there is a sense in which, you know, maybe in humility, we think it'll be small or meager, but even still, there will be commendation and praise from our father. Um, well done, good and faithful servant. And that will take on a, a flavor based on the nature of your service. And so when we entrust ourselves wholly toward Him and wholly toward His Word, it's not like there's self-justification or self-righteousness or pride in that. It's just a recognition of who He is and what, what He's promised to do for us. And so we can, look, we can look forward to it as to, like, you know, a father returning home from a long trip. Were you good or not? Well, I, no. <laughs> on Thursday, I made Mom yell at me, and on Friday, I didn't do my chores okay are you sorry yeah I'm sorry okay now let me now, what things did you do right well I did these things okay great well when I was traveling here's what I picked up for you I want you to have this you know it's a it's a benevolent father who wants what's best for us who wants to correct and forgive what's wrong, and who wants to bless, commend, and praise what's right. And then because God is who he is, he wants to reward lavishly and above and beyond, and even apart from our works, he wants to reward us. That's where the idea of um, merit, in a sense we merit uh, rewards, but the rewards are so much greater than the works. So and get into some technical Latin and concepts of merit, but let's not. <laughs> yeah. You know I have to what yeah. you
1: said in that story yeah, yeah. was so deeper and beautiful, and I just have to point this out. You showed whoever that child was. We'll mm-hmm. just go there. Mm-hmm that that relationship was still important to you despite their imperfections. Yeah, exactly. You thought of them while you were traveling. Exactly. That right. spoke volumes. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah,
0: exactly right. Exactly right. And that's just how our Heavenly Father is, you know. And, and so many of Jesus' parables speaks this way about the man who goes away on a journey but then comes back. And so that's the way our Lord Jesus and our Heavenly Father are going to look at us. Okay, anything else or anything in general on good works, new obedience, that topic? Because we will transition uh, ever so briefly into a conversation about mortal and venial sin. Please.
2: I think I know the answer to this, but just point of clarification. The parable of the two sons where the first son says, I'm not going to do it, but then does it. And then the second son says, I'll do it, and then doesn't do it. Mm -hmm. Can that be applied to us when as we're learning new obedience and practicing new obedience in our thoughts, words, and deeds where we used to think something mm-hmm. and go ahead and say it, and act on it and mm-hmm. as we're starting to reel those behaviors in even if we say I'm absolutely not want to do I don't want to do this but then we do it anyway because we know it's the right thing to do and we're sorry for not wanting mm-hmm. to do it that's the correct son yeah, and it's still counted as a good work, even though initially we went, Ugh. sure it's pushing back the sinful flesh and practicing. Mm-hmm. Do it anyway; it's the right thing to do, mm-hmm. and hopefully, Absolutely. eventually, it'll become yeah. our first inclination is to do the right. Yeah, thing. doing that- it
0: doing it with your teeth gritted is sometimes disparaged by Christians as if, well, that's not truly a good work, so you would have been better off not to do it. That's just not true. Gritting your teeth and doing it over and against the 99.9% of you that doesn't want to do it, that's called mortify, mortifying the flesh. You're putting to death that 99.9% of you that says, No, don't do this. Preserve yourself. Preserve your own self interest. And you go, Oh, I totally feel all of that, but I know this is what God wants me to do. It's done. And you feel all conflicted and maybe even feel sort of terrible about your good work after the fact. That's, the, that's just your flesh being mad that you mortified it in the moment. and You should mortify your flesh again by like praying or picking up a psalm of, of rejoicing and rejoice in the Lord. Yeah, absolutely. That's what it looks like. That, and that's kind of what I was getting at, I think it was last week in this class, where I was talking about like, just do it, the Nike slogan. I don't think I mentioned that per se. I like it when, you got, when you've got a good work to do, just do it. Don't Don't sit and don't get all wrapped up around the axle in your head and... Um, Don't worry about if it's, uh, is this a truly good work or not? I mean, would God have you do this in his word? Is this part of the vocational duty? Do it and go for it. And very often, too, just human behavior is such or human nature is such that um, you got to fake it till you make it. And that is that um, we tend to look at sanctification entirely the backwards way. And it's really dumb because we look at it like, well, the heart has to come first and then that behavior nowhere else in life does that actually work that way you don't say to a kid now we'll take you to school as soon as you feel like it so uh, or nor nor does any adult say um, well i'll get up and get ready for work as soon as my heart's set on it no you have to compel the flesh to do it and only later on does the spirit become willing so you have to fake it till you make it you have to Press through all that stuff, and maybe at some point the heart follows, and maybe it doesn't, but anyway, just do it. And so the mortification of the flesh is like that, and the external actually comes before the internal in this case and can transform the internal. Nobody feels like fasting. Nobody feels like praying. Nobody feels like giving alms. You just do these things out of duty And it may well be the case that after you've done them for a while, you found that your heart has grown along with the behavior. And now you do love these things. I mean, it's the same for church. At first, nobody loves going to church. And then you start getting into it, and you do. (laughs) But I don't know how many you know, depending on who you are and how you are, it takes weeks, months, years, decades before you love church. Just keep going. Don't wait to go to church until you love it. You'll never go. It's a recipe for disaster. Why yeah, that's why you bring children to church. Exactly right.
1: You don't want to be there to be in that. That is so foreign to
0: child development to sit in that hard queue, Yeah. You know, and listen to words
1: they can't even understand. But yeah. Just do
0: it. Yeah. And for the record, I mean, the, the fact that we have little kids in there, that's why to do the same, that's why to do the liturgy over and over and over again gets written into their little hearts, written into their little minds it's also the reason to have beautiful art and elaborate art in the sanctuary because as they're as they're born and rolling and doing somersaults in the pews and everything else and i think it's great i mean even if it distracts me once in a while i could care less even if i full-on like lose my train of thought in a sermon and say something dumb or stumble i'm mad at myself maybe but i could care less that some i want all the kids there I want I the want babies there. I don't, even, I don't personally even care if they're screaming. I know it's frustrating at a certain point if you can't hear and the people can't hear. So that point notwithstanding. But yeah, we want, to, we want to have stuff where our, if our kids zone out, they're zoning out staring at stained glass or staring at statues or staring at art um, that will speak to them the faith. Absolutely. And truth be told, it's not just kids, is it? Yeah, that's it's Yeah, case. exactly. Yeah. Truth be told, yeah, exactly. So do not, I. Not, not, not. No, of course, never at faith and never when I'm speaking. No, I do, I do the same thing. I mean, absolutely. I go to the seminary and you're, you're listening to a sermon and it's just world-class preaching um, and your mind wanders, as it always does, but it's wandering to the right things. It's wandering to um, architecture that's designed to ev- evoke contemplation. So we need, we need more of that, not less of that little side sermon there (laughs) okay anything else on this point good works new obedience all right let's just we're going to barely be able to get into this before i have to take off today and again i'm sorry for that the difference between mortal and venial sin page 102 question 203 do the remains of sin exist and remain in the reborn in this life what do you think of course. Chemnitz' answer, they by all means are and remain. For though the reborn are ruled by the Holy Spirit, yet they complain that nothing good dwells in their flesh. In fact, now look at that. Nothing good dwells in their flesh isn't a denial that the Holy Spirit has made them new and has created a new man within. So don't, don't get your wires crossed there. Though they are ruled by the Holy Spirit, yet they complain that nothing good dwells in their flesh. In fact, also when they want to do good, evil is connected with it. Or evil is close by, at right at hand. And that the flesh wars against the Spirit. And even also when they are holy and serve God and are not conscious of any evil, yet they confess that they are sinners. Remember St. Paul saying, I don't know of anything against myself. I'm not thereby justified, but I don't know of anything against. That's a clean conscience, and it's fine for us to say as Christians. In fact, that's what we should aspire to in our conduct. You know, you go through some conflict or something, you, sh- you should aspire to and conduct yourself in such a way in which you say, I know of nothing against myself in this particular matter. I'm not thereby justified. We'll leave that into the hands of the one who is the judge, God, but I've got a clean conscience. And that's what we aspire toward. Okay, so, and even also when they are holy and serve God and are not conscious of any evil, yet they confess that they are sinners. In fact, he that does not acknowledge and confess this, but says that he has no sin, deceives himself. And of course, you recognize that from our service. First 1 John 1, eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Therefore, all the saints have need in this life daily to repeat this, Father, forgive us our sins. And of course, as, as we pray the Lord's Prayer, as the Catechism teaches us morning and evening, we pray, forgive us our trespasses. So we're reminded at the beginning and at the close of every day that we stand in the forgiveness of sins, and we daily sin much. We, we deserve nothing but punishment. We deserve that God wouldn't hear our prayer. We pray that he would forgive us our sins and gladly listen and hear our prayers. Okay. Let's go ahead and do 204. Is then David committing adultery, nevertheless righteous and holy, and does he remain so? By no means. For Scripture's distinguishes between sins, namely, that the saints or reborn there are in the saints or reborn, there are some sins because of which they are not condemned, but at the same time retain faith, the holy Spirit, grace, and the forgiveness of sins. Maybe next week we could even spend some time looking at this because i' under, looking at these next uh, texts that are listed here because I understand that this is a subtle point, but in the saints where the Holy Spirit and faith and grace and the forgiveness of sins are retained, there um, can still be sin. But Scripture testifies that there are also some other sins in which also the reconciled, when they have fallen, lose faith, the Holy Spirit, the grace of God, and life eternal, and render themselves subject to divine wrath and eternal death, unless turned again. They are reconciled to God through faith. And then there's a whole bunch of citations there. So maybe that'll be our plan for next week, is to dig into these scriptures and really see these two points unfold. Kenneth continues, and the useful distinction between mortal and venial sin is drawn from this basis. So yes, Lutherans do talk about mortal and venial sin, and it is because there's a scriptural basis to this. Chemnitz continues, Paul speaks of sin ruling against conscience or with conscience put away and sin that indeed dwells in the flesh but does not rule. More scripture is given. So, understandably, um, that's going to take some unpacking, which we can do next week, looking at a text or two maybe for each of these. But I think the point, nonetheless, is simple enough that there are sins that put one, that one can conduct and still remain in the faith, and there are sins that one does that cast him outside of the faith. And that, on, on the basis, not, that, not specifically speaking that one sin is worse than another, but because of the internal change that's taken place, that is, you know, in the same way that Eve decides against God's word, and then bites the apple, uh, these sins flow from a heart that is already departed from God. Okay, so more to come on that, and uh, we'll get to talk about the seven deadly sins. And we'll get to talk about all sins not being equal and many more other things to come. The Lord be with you.